Good morning. All right. We're going to continue with 1 Timothy. So if you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six, verses one and two today. Did you hear the joke about the preacher who couldn't come up with a funny story to begin his message? We'll begin reading in verse one. <clears throat> let us let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the perfection of your word, that every word uh, is always applicable to us. And so, Lord, as we, we study just these two verses, we pray, Lord, that we will learn and mature in ways that bring us closer to Christ and more like Christ. And we also pray, Lord, you be glorified just in this time together. Uh, but uh, you'll be glorified in our hearts uh, as we hope that this will have an impact on our lives uh, and uh, let the world see the light that shines within us. We thank you, Father, for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, so uh, we're going to kind of look at this. I knew I was missing something. Notes. Oops. All right. All right. So, um, we're going to look at these two verses. I numbered it backwards, Josh. Isn't that funny? All right. I always number my pages, so when I flip them about halfway through, I know which one I'm on. I did them backwards. All right. It's going to be one of those days. You parked in my spot, Denise. It's like <laughs> she parked in my spot. I'm like all disheveled now. All right. It's important in church. You don't sit in somebody else's chair. You don't park in somebody else's spot. It's thus saith the Lord. You, you throw this place in chaos. All right. So... The, the specific context, right, it, and Paul's writing to Timothy to talk about the people in Ephesus, is to servants, those who are people in, in a form of servitude. But as we look at this and study this, we're going to do what is commonly done, just as a heads up, that we're going to look at this as it works, as applies to us as those who work for a living, right? As, as someone who has the responsibility to work for someone else. That's the idea of a servant, someone who works for someone else. So we're, we're going to kind of look at the, the literal context a little bit, and we're going to look at the practical application um, that will help us in the things that we have to do. As long as we're here, we have to work. And so let's try and do it in a godly way. What it does mean, though, when we look at the fact that Paul is writing to Timothy to talk about those who are bond servants, those who are, in a, in a lot of ways, a form of bondage. They're, they're servants. They're, they could be slaves here in the Roman Empire. But one of the things that's complicated I think, and people find a problem with this, and, and we're going to try and try and adjust it best we can. But I want to hit this right off the head as, as an issue. Why does nothing in Paul's writing ever tell masters to free their slaves? He never tells his Christian masters, "You have Christian slaves; you should set them free." There's something about Christianity. And the message that was begin spread throughout the Roman Empire through these early Christians, and, and we'll look at it here in, in, in a few minutes, but it's the, real, the reality that you need to be Christ's where you are. That's the first message and the first point. 
whatever you are found in, whatever condition you're found in, you need to realize that you are Christ's right there, right then, immediately, and nothing in your circumstances needs to change for that to be a reality. We do not, our circumstances are not promised to change. We change. This idea of a bondservant, one who's in servitude. It's, it's odd, too, um, just to point out that in this, these two verses, all the times that Paul wrote to the churches about bondservants and masters and slaves, this is the only time he doesn't write about to the masters. He's only speaking to the bondservants. We actually will look at those who are masters um, in a little bit. The, the idea here, too, is to realize that these could be people who are in voluntary servitude or involuntary servitude, right? This is the Roman Empire. They loved slaves. It's estimated that when this was written, there were probably 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire. And they loved to take people as slaves every time they conquered another nation. And the funny thing is that this is what the time was part of the Greek Empire. I don't know if you know Ephesus is actually what's in modern Turkey is where it's actually located, but it was part of the Greek, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, and then the Romans conquered it, right? They did the same thing. It's a problem of mankind. It's a problem of mankind. They love to take people and force them into slavery. And scriptures do talk about it, and sometimes people are confused about what it says. But in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 24, Paul exhorts, as he's talking about a lot of different things, a lot of different people, remain with God in the place where you are called. Remain with God. There's an encouragement. Whatever circumstances we're found in at the time of our conversion, we're immediately with God. Nothing needs to change for our relationship to be with God. We are with God is with us now in that moment, in that opportunity, in that situation. And there's a lot of confusion that I'm, I'm going to get into us, but I want to just give a little historical background, if you don't mind, because this, this is something I kind of rabbit trailed on this as I was studying this idea of bond servants. And um, I feel you're going to have to suffer with me through it as, as I did. But the, the thing I wanted to look at is, what does God say about slavery? What, what, is, is it okay? Is it not okay? People have been questioning, especially the Old Testament, uh, since, they, since this has been out. What does God say about it? Because people in the Old Testament, when they came out of Egypt, right, God gave rules for people who wanted to sell themselves into servitude. God gave rules for people who, they could have been poor, they could have been in debt to someone. But here, you're going you're to work out an arrangement where you're going to work off. Now, here's the way God does things, though, that's different, that people need to realize, okay? First of all, if you can't make ends meet, or, this is going back 3,500 years, or you were in debt to someone, you could become a servant, and work it off, or you just work for them. They provide you all your food, all your clothing, your place to live. You're a servant. You don't get paid, okay? But what God does is to keep man in some form of righteousness as, as he provides for one another. He says, at the end of six years, no matter what, you set them free. You cannot keep anyone. You can't perpetuate the debt. You can't make them work it off and keep changing the rules, right? That's what extortion is. We keep changing the rules. No, you owe me a little bit more. You owe me a little bit more. God doesn't allow them to do that to each other. And not only that, God says when you set them free at the end of six years, you're going to give them an abundance of whatever they need to be self-sufficient. You reap the benefit of six years of free labor. 
You did really well. Now you're going to set them free and you're going to set them up to be self-sufficient. What a concept. What a concept. But if the servant wanted to stay, they could choose to stay. And all they had to do was just put their ear up against the door jam and let them hammer a nail through their ear and just to say, yeah, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. Not a big deal. Easy to do, right? But if you really want to be here, we want to make sure you want to be here. And then they become a servant. There's all kinds of other things and a lot of things that go into it. But here's what God also says in Exodus 21:16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. There has never been a tolerance in God's eye, in God's heart, that man can take another man and force him into slavery. That has never been allowed in God's, in God's law. So people get confused about what the law allows, and, oh, you see the Bible, they had servants and all these other things. There's God's way. There's God's way. And it's far more complicated than that. There's all kinds of other verses that go into it that we're not going to get into. But why doesn't Paul address this here, talking to these people? Does he not? Maybe he does. Let's go to chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. We'll first start in verse... Eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers or murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust." So Paul does address the problem of slavery. If you're in a, in a place of bondage, wherever God has found you and wherever you've been when you found God, God's going to work with you there. But know this, it is a sin to kidnap people and force them into slavery. That's what he means by kidnappers, those who take people against their will and sell them or force them into slavery. It's still wrong, and, and Paul is still calling it out. So I don't want there to be any confusion, just a little law, history lesson there about the attitude of God in the scriptures. So people see servants, and people can be servants, and is it right or is it wrong? There, there's context, and we're also talking life of the world 2,000 years ago. The world has changed. But know this, before we move on, I just want to make this one comment. Slavery is still a problem today. Around the world, India, North Korea, all these countries, forced servitude, it could be trafficking. It could be forced labor. There's all kinds of ways that they quantify slavery. Let us not be, you know, uh, unaware of the world that we still live in. Just because America made it illegal, there's still a problem in America with trafficking and people who are forced into things. We should not, uh, not think of these things in our prayers and prayers for others. I just want to encourage you to remember that there's who, there are those who suffer around the world who have been taken against their will. It is still a problem, and God hates it. God hates it, so we should too. So, enough with the bond servants. Speaking to those who are now in servitude, who work. Paul says, who are under the yoke. As you know, um, I always feel like I need to explain this. I don't know why, just in case somebody doesn't know what a yoke is, right? The yoke is the big piece of upside-down U that goes across cattle or steer 
when you're plowing a field. Typically, is how it's used. It keeps them all together. You're talking about big two-ton beasts or whatever they weigh. You've got to keep them together so they all plow the same direction. So you put what's called a yoke on. It's a big, thick piece of wood. It keeps them all together so they all go the way the lead one goes. They cannot deviate in their own direction. So under the yoke means that these people do not have freedom to live their own life. They're under the yoke in servitude to someone else. It implies an inferior position to whoever is, I'll call it the lead yoker. It's a, it's, it's, you do not have the liberty to go the way you want to go. It's an opportunity for these new believers to show the gospel, believe it or not. It's an opportunity to be submissive. It's an opportunity to be a hard worker without being difficult and challenging and hard to manage. The yoke is there because they want to go their own way. But in this context now, Paul's saying, if you're under the yoke, count your masters worthy of all honor. Now here's the difference. This is why Paul's able to say this to them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Every context in Scripture, let's just preface, clarify that with everything I've ever been able to find. It's a burden. The yoke is always a burden because it controls someone. The yoke always controls someone against their will. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 11, chapter 28. I'm sure you know these verses very well. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Life has changed for the bondservant who's been under a yoke of servitude because now they have the yoke of Christ. Now they can see life not under a yoke of bondage, but in a yoke of liberty. So whatever situation I'm in, it's okay because I'm Christ now, and Christ's yoke is easy for me. So if you want me to go this way, I can go this way. You want me to go that way, I can go that way because I'm not worried about forcing my liberty and my will in my life. I think that sometimes if life's a burden, we need to examine ourselves and say, whose yoke am I under? Whose yoke am I under? Am I allowing life and work and problems and all these things to be my yoke? Or is Christ my yoke? I'm under Christ's yoke, I should say better. Is Christ, am I under Christ's yoke? Do I have light, heart? Have I found the gentleness and the humility in Christ as I've learned from him so that my soul has rest? Or am I still feeling the strain of whatever is upon me, whatever is constraining me? There's a new yoke for believers. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. So what does this allow them to do? It allows them to count their masters worthy of all honor. As is often the case in Scripture, when people are commanded about how to look at or treat other people, common theme, how they are is not dependent on how you are. How they are is not dependent on how you are. Let me rephrase that. How you are is not dependent on how they are. Does that make more sense? 
He's not speaking about whether the master is saved or unsaved. He's not talking about how they treat you. Your boss, whatever authority you have, we're going to apply this now. We're going to start spinning this into our own lives. Nothing they do affects what we're asked to do. We are asked to call those in authority, especially in a work environment, to consider them worthy of honor, which means to give them esteem and dignity and respect. Let's be honest. Anybody who works for a living, it is not easy to respect your boss. It's just not. You know why? Because we want to do things our way. Even if they're right, inherently in our nature, we, we think we got a better way. It's just against our nature. It's, it's a challenge to respect those in authority that we work for. But Paul tells us here, no matter what they're doing, no matter how they are, show them respect. Because when we do that, we're showing God that we respect his authority. He is the ultimate authority. If we disrespect any authority, even if they're a buffoon, it challenges God and does not show proper authority towards God. The thing that people often struggle with, now I'm coming at this, I'm just telling you straight up, I'm a supervisor and I'm an employee. I got a boss and I have people under me. So I've been able to see this stuff, I'm kind of coming up from both perspectives uh, in, in what I do. And a lot of times, people do not realize and respect and appreciate the burden that a boss has. All that's on their shoulders. All we think about is ourselves and what I got to do, and you're not thinking of me, we don't ever think of them. We don't think who they're accountable to. We think about our one little thing, we do this one little thing, and this is all we have to worry about, so why are they being that way? But they've got a whole load that they have to be concerned with. And so our little piece matters a lot. So we have a responsibility to lighten their load. If you work for someone, no matter how insignificant what you do is, you have a responsibility to make sure you do it in a way that lightens their load. That makes them feel worthy of honor. And that's a testimony. So it's true. You know, we, we like to think that we, we know better and we're smarter than the boss. If we were, we'd be the boss. I mean, let's be honest. But, um, you know, you know, some of my own experiences is um, I stress to my staff all the time, tell me if you disagree, tell me if they have open door, tell me if you disagree with me. You're here because I value what you think, so I want to hear what you have to say. If I say run through that wall, I expect you to run through that wall, but if you think it's a bad idea, you should tell me why. There's brick on the other side. Well, you should tell me that. Don't just run through the wall. But at the same time, if I say I need you to run through that wall, don't say, no, we don't want to do that. We need a skylight. That's what I deal with half the time. We, no, 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 we need to sky. What are you talking about? Just do what I told you, right? Just do what I told you. Thank you. This is like a therapy session for me too, by the way. I'm um, getting things off my chest. But, but you, know, you know, the thing is, it's just we have an opportunity to present the Christian's attitude towards God in our workplace. And the first place we can do that is with those we work, not just who we work with, but who we work for. And listen, it's hard. I... I have, I have situations where my boss has asked us to do something that I know is not immoral, but we'll just say wrong. It's not the right thing to do, the right way to do it. And I've talked to him about it respectfully, and he says, I hear you, but we're going to do it anyway. I then have to go to my staff and say, we got to do this. And they're all going to say, what? And I have to say, yes, you're right, it's wrong. 
but we're going to do it anyway. I can't say to them, just shut up and do it because the boss said it, because that doesn't show them any respect, right? They need to be qualified and, and respected and valued, but at the same time, I'm not going to deny the fact that this is obviously wrong, because now I've lost my integrity. So I have this balance to walk in between. So in whatever situation we're in, we can be honest, but respectful. When I'm talking to my boss and he's telling me to do something or need something done and I don't think it's the right way to do it, I don't disagree with him. I let him tell me what I need to do and I go, okay, you got it, no problem. And once he's, this is like um, psychological manipulation, by the way, if you wondering how to do this, but after he's comfortable that I've accepted what he's told me what to do and I know he's not worried about me being contentious, I can then turn around and say, hey, may I have a better idea. What do you think about this? I talk to him respectfully. I don't just challenge him and say, what are you talking about? That's stupid, right? You can't talk to people like that. You want to, maybe they deserve it, but that's not the way we should do. That's not showing them honor and respect. We have to be a testimony to how we treat those people who are in authority to those around us. Your boss, you may be the only Christ-like experience they ever have. And if the only Christ-like experience they have is challenging, insubordinate, disrespectful, uncooperative, why would they ever be interested in Christ? We can influence the people around us who are like that, even if we're not, right? We can encourage them to be more respectful or authority. We can change our entire environment. We can change everything that's going on around us by doing this. So disrespect to any authority is to disregard God's authority. But Paul, this is what I love about Scripture. If you've ever noticed this, I love this. When we're told to do something, we're almost always told why. We don't ever have to wonder, why should I do that? He says right here, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. The name of God. We talked about blasphemy in chapter 1, right? Everybody remembers blasphemy? Speaking that which is not true of someone, to defame them, to vilify them. So when we do not show whoever's in authority over us that they are worthy of honor, Paul's saying we blaspheme the name of God. So just by being disrespectful of in, in our workplace, it's a form of blasphemy. Because we bear his name. They think of him when they see us. So how we act affects that. The Word of God declares we are different. We are set apart. If we don't show that, it's blasphemy because we're saying the Word of God is null. It's not real. It's not true. It's not what happens. So we have an opportunity to do that. I, I, I thought of a story to, to, to give an example of this. It doesn't really apply to work, but I think it. maybe you'll just enjoy it. But when I was young, my, uh, my dad became involved in the Guilford Auxiliary Police which, if you knew my dad, was of the ironies of ironies. But um, for a long time, he was involved in police, and he became actually the president of the Guilford Auxiliary Police. And they would do all kinds of things, patrols, and they ran the police boat and did rescues in Long Island Sound and all kinds of stuff. They really did a lot. Um, so I had to kind of be careful what I did in town. So everybody knew my dad. But, um, but um, my dad was also the guy who made my brother be a lookout while him and my uncle stole the big red neon sea off the Crown Theater when it closed in New Haven. So... You know, life, life has its funnies. So I always, what's this big red sea in the garage? Don't worry about it. 
thing was like this big. Anyway, so, uh, so there's my dad, president of the auxiliary police. And one day I'm driving through town, I'm probably around 18 or so, and it was the middle of the day, and I just spaced out, just lost in thought, middle of the day, down Route 1 in Guilford, State Street intersection. I remember like it was yesterday, drove right through a red light. Middle of the day, cars are going like this. I was going, as I went through, I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing? And I realized, of course, there's a cop car on the side road on patrol. Whoop, pulls me over. I'm like, oh, no. Who do you think it was? Not my father. It was the vice president of the auxiliary police, which in some ways was, was worse because now he's got to tell my dad the story. So he looks at my ID. He's like, Gene's son? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I just spaced out. He's like, right, just stop it. Be careful. I'm like, okay, good. Let's me go. Now he's got ammunition, and he goes to see my dad, and they're hanging out, and he tells him this story of this guy who in the middle of the afternoon ran through the red light and gives my dad the opportunity to say every kind of thing you would say about the idiot who drives through a red light, words I can't use here, can't use at all anywhere, and about this kind of, this kind of person, and then he goes, oh, by the way, you never guess his name, and he tells him it's me. So what's the reason for this story? It wasn't about me at that point. I shamed my father. I shamed my father. I have his name. And to those who were supposed to respect him, and, and it was a joke to them, so don't take it the wrong way, but you see what happens when you do something, you bring shame to the father's name. We embarrass the father. We bear his name. And I hope everyone you work with knows you're a believer. It shouldn't be a secret. We don't have to harp on people and bang them over the head. But when they see us and watch us and work with us, they should know who we are. And how we do everything affects how they see him. It is a responsibility that we need to take seriously. And his doctrine is blasphemed. His name is how we're identified. His doctrine is what he says and instructs and how we're to be. So not only do we embarrass him in his name, but now we're telling people that God's word is invalid. It doesn't mean anything. People who follow him aren't really like that. So we have to obey what his word said. Remember the three T's of your work, right? Testimony, testimony, and testimony. What do they think when they see you? What's the example that we're giving in our workplace, uh, especially when it comes to authority? Now Paul goes on to say, in verse 2, if you have believing masters, if they have believing masters, don't despise them because they're brethren. So we've been kind of talking about the idea of what it's like to work with unbelieving bosses, right? What if your boss is a believer? Well, Paul says here, don't despise them. See, because we still have a problem with authority. We still have an inherent problem with people telling us what to do. And so it's a challenge, even if it's, an, if it's a believer, we're going to kind of have, a dis, have a, an attitude towards them because they're supposed to be treating us a certain way, but they're boss. But again, remember what I said. A boss has responsibilities and burdens. And if your boss is having a bad day, especially if they're a believer, don't judge them. Help them. Something's burdening them. Something's impacting them. So how can you show them love and support and mercy to encourage them and not just become bittered because they didn't show you special favoritism because you're a believer? We don't like to be ruled. We like to rebel against any authority, and if it's a believer, it can be even harder because we expect special treatment. Maybe we shouldn't get it. 
What example does it put them under when they have to supervise a lot of people and they're giving you favoritism? That's a bad testimony for them. They're a bad testimony. What we need to do is work harder. We need to work harder for them. There's a couple of verses that I think would, would encourage us to more about church life, but we can apply it this way if you work for a believer. Because we desire to bless them and to encourage them. Galatians 5.13, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, but do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you are blessed with a believing boss, work harder for them. Work harder for them. Make their load easy and show everyone how you love them. Make them feel loved and lighten their load. And we know Ephesians 4 talks about the humility of Christ. I just want to pull out verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Humble ourselves before our, our Christian boss. Humble ourselves before them. Make them feel like we respect them. Make their load light. Now Paul says, teach and exhort these things. To teach, obviously, is explain, which is what we've just done. And remember, exhort, we looked at exhort in chapter 1 also. You guys remember what exhort means? Encourage with inspiration. I don't remember exactly how I said it, but that's how I remember it. Encourage with inspiration. So don't just encourage each other to do these things. Don't just encourage your coworkers, but do it in a way that they find inspiring to want to do it. Not because it's a commandment, but because it's a desire of the heart. That's where an exhortation leaves people. That's where we need to be. We need to be desiring to do these things wherever we work, whatever we do. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, Paul only writes here to the servants, but I think it's important that we look at, at scriptures that speak to servants and masters. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians 6, 6, beginning in verse 5. It says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to man, men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening... It goes my whole managerial style. Knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So first of all, going back to the servants, to those who work, God sees the heart. I want to stress this as we talk about these things, how we are in the workplace. It has to be more than just a show for men pleasers. It has to be the sincerity of the heart because God sees that. And God wants us more than just to be uh, with eye service as men pleasers, um, as those who are um, sucking up and, and doing that kind of stuff, but really doing it unto the Lord. Lord, I want you to be glorified by how I'm working my job, how I'm treating my boss, how I'm taking my responsibility seriously. I do it for you. And he tells the, the, the masters, 
the bosses. Do the same things to them. A Christian boss should be one who encourages his employees, and they want to work for him, and they want to do things because they respect him because of the way he treats them, or she treats them, the way we treat them. There's no justification for unrighteous behavior just because we're a boss. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, beginning in verse 18. If there's any passage on this that's convicting, I think it should be this one. First Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? It's the other thing I can't do anymore. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When we have a situation where we work and the boss is harsh, there is the most opportune moment to express Christ. Realize that. When things are hard and things are unfair, bosses mean, things are not fair, you didn't get what you deserved, you didn't get credit that you deserved, whatever the situation may be, endure it with silence and humility, and grace is the greatest way in the workplace we can testify to Christ. Let others see when injustice happens how we handle it. Don't talk about it. You can believe what just happened to me. Believe what he just said. If he took my idea? No, 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 no. Just endure with grace. With grace. Let God be glorified and let them see how we're different. This is how we show they're different more than any other way. We show we're different how hard we work, right? Especially if it's a Christian boss, we should be early and work late, right? But in all situations, if they're harsh, if they're ungodly, we can show the power of Christ in our lives. Because I don't need your credit. I don't need your praise. I work this job to glorify God. And if you're not going to recognize me, well, I can always go get another job. But I don't need to be shouting from the rooftops, this is unfair, and I have been untreated unfairly. Now, let me put this in the context. We should advocate for ourselves. Okay, there's a reason why companies have human resources and there are laws to protect us. So I don't want this to be in the wrong context. But sometimes things feel unfair. Sometimes the boss is unrighteous. We don't always have to stand up for ourselves. Sometimes we give a better testimony and we just put our head down and work harder. Put our head down and work harder and Christ be glorified because that's what Christ did. As he was beaten and as he was abused, 
and as he was whipped, and as he was scourged, not a word exited his mouth. And we claim to be his. What are we going through that so hard that we can't endure? So I'm going to close with some thoughts. So not only do we want to strive to glorify God with how we work, regardless of who we work for, but every unsaved employer after us should want to only hire Christians. Every saved employer should want to hire only Christians. That's not been everyone's experience. I've talked to people who said, I'll never hire a Christian. Worst experience of my life. Broke my heart when people said that. So it wasn't about me, so it was okay. But seriously, there are people who've been, you know, it was, a work, it was a terrible experience. We should be those who work in the workplace that we're the kind of people they want. We are expected to be hardworking, joyful, supportive and respectful of authority. We should have the ethic and the effort and the attitude that reflects Jesus Christ. Being done in a way that reflects Christ. Being done differently. We can handle hardship, frustration, and even injustice with grace, patience, and endurance. And when we do this, God is glorified. Remember, if at work we turn out to be whiners and complainers and we don't do what we say we're going to do, we not only affect our integrity, but we blaspheme the name of the Lord. His name is the one that takes the hit. Wherever we work or serve, everyone should look at us the way Pharaoh looked at Joseph. There's no one like him. I'm going to put him in charge of everything. There's no one more honesty, more integrity, more effort. I trust him completely. That's the way we should be looked at. We spend probably the majority of our waking hours, for those of us who work, at work. Right? I mean, you got your weekends and you got nights. Other than that, you're at work. I think that's most of our time that we're actually uh, not in bed. So we need to take this responsibly. This is a major part of our lives. And if you work for a believer, make sure that they are blessed and thankful that they have someone who makes their load light. Not just in the work, but what it takes to manage someone. It's a load. To be a boss is a load. It's hard. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of decisions, and a lot of strain. We have the opportunity to make it easier for them. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll have uh, corporate prayer time. Loving God, we thank you for being our Lord. We thank you that in different situations here in life, there will be authority over us, and we may even be in authority. But in all ways and in all things, God, we recognize that you are our true authority. And in everything that we do, we want to do it in a way that glorifies you. We want to work hard like we're working for you. We want to have ethics and honesty and integrity like we're doing it for you. We want to be a testimony wherever we work, wherever we serve, even if it's here in the church, to how much we trust you and not, not man. So God, help us in these things. Help us to be mindful and respectful and cognizant of the fact that we represent you.
we carry your name, when people see us, how we do and what we say, they're going to think of you. So may we do these things in a way that glorifies you. And Father, again, we want to thank you for what Jesus endured for us. If he could endure that to and on the cross, what could be so hard here that we can't endure? We thank you for the suffering and we thank you for the risen Savior who has risen again and given us life. That we are his. So we really truly only have one master and is our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him in his name. Amen. All right, well, did you pick anybody to close? All right.